So now you've spent from the time you're 18 years old till you're in your mid-30s to be a comfortable practicing physician, comfortable with the art of medicine. And now you're going to spend three hours a week talking to insurance companies because you need to order stuff for your patients. And that just doesn't seem right. Welcome to the Rebel Health Coach Podcast with Tom Underwood. Armed with truth and knowledge, your journey to a healthy lifestyle can be obtained. Preventative wellness, quality nourishment, and daily fitness routines dramatically improve your outlook on life as a whole. And you'll find the support and info you need to accomplish a healthier lifestyle here. Together, we can empower each other along our journey to an amazing you. Welcome to episode 122 of the Rebel Health Coach podcast. I've got a doozy for you today. I have today's guest, Ed Icorn. He is a successful healthcare executive and entrepreneur. He consults for medical societies and healthcare organizations through his company, MetaLink Consulting Group. He is the co author of Healing American. Healthcare, a book that describes a universal healthcare plan for the United States that would actually save our country $1 trillion per year. Ed recently founded the Healing American Healthcare Coalition to keep healthcare professionals informed on important research and industry news. We are going to discuss today how the pandemic has affected our healthcare industry. We are also going to dive deep into our broken healthcare system, or as I like to say, our disease care system, and dig deep into why it's so broken and what we can do to reverse it and make healthcare affordable for everybody. So buckle your seatbelts, enjoy the ride, and thank you for listening. If you like this show, please take a minute and re- Write a review for the show. I'd appreciate it very much. Thank you, and have a great day. All right. Today's episode, I have Ed Icorn with me. And I hope I said that right, Ed. Absolutely correct, Tom. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. And this is a topic that... Uh, and very adamant and passionate about because from my angle as a health a pra, a functional medicine trained health coach our system is severely broken a and we really don't even have a healthcare system at all we have a sick care system <laughs> and but before we dive into how the pandemic has affected our healthcare industry and our healthcare system in general, and the topic on how the pandemic has affected our healthcare industry, who is Ed Icorn? <laughs> and how did you get into this crazy world of healthcare? Well, I um, go back a long way. When I actually started out, I had uh, graduated from college with a degree in chemical engineering, and I was taking interviews. And uh, I got very interested in an interview with uh, a medical supply company that many people are familiar with named Beckton Dickinson. Uh, And I went to work with them and learned to be a project engineer. And at that time, there were only about 
in the nation, only about three biomedical uh, engineering majors available in engineering schools. And I, I learned a lot about uh, medical devices and medical issues on the job. And uh, after a few years, I was selected to be a, a researcher where I went and I literally lived in to- hospitals around the clock for six months. And I was looking for new products for, uh, for VD. And I learned a great deal about hospital operation and, and what the issues were for patients when they were in the hospital. I went from BD to being a um, director of research at um, National Medical Care, which was a provider of dialysis services. And from there, my partners and I started our own company. We did uh, medical imaging uh, for about 10 years. And uh, when we sold the company, I joined a uh, medical imaging company, actually, called Medical Resources, and I helped to manage uh, 110 uh, medical imaging centers around the nation. And around 2006, I started uh, the MediLink Consulting Group, uh, where uh, we consulted for medical societies and um, medical imaging companies uh, as um, you know, medical legislation was being considered. And I, I uh, you know, provided services to uh, medical societies as Obamacare was being imagined at that time. So I got very interested in the issues of cost of, of healthcare, and um, that led me uh, to write a book uh, in 2017 with my co-author, Dr. Michael Hutchinson, because we felt, as you feel, that the system was broken, and not only was it broken, it was way too expensive. So um, we designed, uh, based on a year of research, a uh, Another approach to healthcare that we thought would be good for the United States because it would provide universal health care and reduce the cost of care by a trillion dollars a year. So our, our, uh, our book was called Healing American Healthcare. And uh, subsequent to that, we started the Healing American Healthcare uh, Coalition. Uh, and we provide uh, members who are uh, primarily nurses and physicians who are quite busy with an email twice a month that uh, teachers interesting articles on the pandemic and other healthcare issues so that they can just take a quick look at uh, the summaries of these articles. And if they're interested in a particular one, they can just click on the title in our newsletter and see the whole article. We monitor about 50 publications, you know, for anything from uh, like the New York Times or another newspaper to health affairs or research papers or Lancet or, uh, you know, JAMA, whatever makes sense to the topic of the, of the month. So that's kind of how I got where we are today. That's crazy. And that book is amazing. I read it over the weekend. And uh, here's my take on this subject. And and we can go from there. Our system is, like I said earlier, severely broken. I believe personally that our system is made worse by the Obamacare and the skyrocketing cost of Obamacare and the healthcare system in America. Well, I, I think Obamacare started out as an attempt to reduce the cost of healthcare, and it was unsuccessful uh, in doing that, partially because, for a number of reasons, the opportunity to have a public option to help bring down the cost of healthcare uh, didn't make it into the final legislation, which I think is a big, you know, big problem. So I, I think that helped to make it more expensive. The other thing that makes it more expensive, I think it's very bureaucratic. And uh, that's why in the United States, as I mentioned in the book, we spend a lot of money on um, paying for healthcare, not just getting the healthcare, but paying for it. In uh, other countries, in the Organization for uh, 
cooperation and economic development of the UN. There's 37 democracies in that uh, in that group of countries, and, and we are certainly part of that. But we're the most expensive by far. Our bureaucracy costs as much as a thousand dollars a year for a family of four. Uh, for a family of four in Japan, uh, the same service of billing costs two hundred dollars. So, you know that's that's a big issue, and that bureaucracy takes the time of physicians right. uh, as well uh, when they have to deal with uh, a, a myriad of insurance companies uh, to get the care that they want for their patients. And um, you know the whole idea of pre-authorization probably started out as a good thing uh, at one time. But, you know, today, many of the things that require pre-authorization are approved 98% of the time. So why go through the time and and why delay the treatment or image or whatever it is you need for that patient for three or four days while you're waiting for the pre-authorization to do what needs to be done? And and that, that makes things uh, more complicated. And in some cases, it makes it a lot worse. Now, here's, a, here's something... Let's get into before we dig into the book a little more because there's a lot of questions there, and the book is very, like I said, I was very interesting. From my side of the fence, from the functional medicine perspective, we have some very good advocates on the functional medicine. Doctor Mark Hyman, Chris Kresser, mm-hmm. who wrote a book called Unconventional Medicine. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. James Maskell is a huge proponent of the functional medicine side. And is fighting for this, you know, a system that works. But how has the pandemic affected our healthcare industry in a, as a whole? And one thing I think personally is the fact, the fact that because of Obamacare is so expensive to have, there's a lot of people that don't have insurance. Therefore, there and most of the people that don't have insurance. And I, I'm, this is a generalization, and people can rag, rag on me if they want. But most of the people that can't afford it don't eat properly. Therefore, they're getting sick because their immune system's just rot. And this is an immune system disease or virus. So therefore, they're going to the hospital to be treated for a virus that could have been avoided by eating and exercise. But because of their lifestyle, they got the disease. They don't have insurance. So now the insurance companies or the hospitals are biting the dust on their cost. Is that kind of where what you think about the how this has affected our healthcare system? Well, uh, no, not exactly. So I, I think we'll have a, a good discussion about this. I believe the pandemic has pointed out several um, shortcomings in the way we deal with healthcare in the United States. It's very clear uh, because of the level of infection uh, in the African-American community and the Hispanic community that they don't have the access to health care that they should have. And uh, in part, that is because uh, they may or may not have insurance, right? But to build on what you said, you know, about 29 million Americans prior to the pandemic did not have insurance. But it's worse than that because another 40 million people uh, have insurance, but they're underinsured. So with respect to eating right and, uh, you know, uh, preventative care, there's about 70 million Americans that don't have access to any of that. And we see that in the obesity uh, problems in the United States and the fact that we have a number of undiagnosed type 2 diabetics rolling around. Now, when you're not uh, diagnosed as a type 2 diabetic over a long period of time, now you become a candidate for uh, vascular disease, 
dialysis treatment because of the small vessel aspect of type 2 diabetes. So in the background, they have all that going on when the pandemic actually hit. The second thing is it made uh, the pandemic brought to light. It's very clear that we underspend on public health in the United States. And, you know, when uh, public health officials in some parts of the country call for mitigation strategies to try to keep people apart, to wear a mask, wash your hands, avoid crowds, that sort of stuff, they got threatened. People threatened their lives and they quit <laughs> because of, of the pressure that was brought upon them by people who were, you know, very unhappy with the idea that public health measures had to be taken. So, you know, I think those things uh, became very apparent that we are not funding public health enough. And the idea that we don't have a, a strong preventative medicine approach in our society means that a lot of people were uninsured or underinsured and part related to the cost, both for companies that provide insurance and for individuals that are going to try to buy the insurance themselves that, that couldn't afford it. We also, as a, a remnant of Obamacare, there are um, 17 states that chose not to expand Medicaid benefits. So the number of uninsured in those states is higher, which is a, a, another problem that uh, exacerbates uh, in a pandemic. In terms of the way the immune system works, based on the way the immune system works and the way this uh, virus works, whether or not you have a good diet is a factor, but having a good diet will not uh, protect you from the coronavirus. It may make you stronger to deal with being treated for the virus, but it's not going to protect you from the virus. Okay. And here's part of the problem with the, the whole metabolic issue and the uh, diabetes is in order for a doctor, because I interviewed a doctor about a little bit ago, I forgot what episode it was. I should have looked it up before we started. But the, where I'm going with this is in order for a doctor to get run a hemoglobin A1C test, mm -hmm. they have to have high glucose. They have to have high insulin sugar. They have okay. to have high sugars in order to get the coding to get insurance to pay for the hemoglobin A1C. But glucose can be triggered by a lot of different things. Fasting, it can be triggered by white coat syndrome, or when you go see the doctor, you get panicky. It can spike, you know. So getting hemoglobin, you should be able, a doctor should be able to run a hemoglobin A1C all the time. I agree. Well, in our book, we are now writing about the pandemic and our uh, our approach that we believe ought to be a part of healthcare. We're making a point in one of the chapters that um, we ought to allow doctors to practice medicine. Right. And, you know, the without their hands tied. Without their hands tied, exactly. And if you want to monitor whether someone is abusing, ordering MRIs or anything else, it ought to be a post uh, order review so that, you know, you're going along and, and um, you get an email from the insurance company or whomever and says, uh, the average number of MRIs you are ordering is 1.3 per patient. The national average is 1.1. Please explain why you order more. And it could be because of the mix of patients the doctor sees. It could be that he's overutilizing. Uh, but do it afterwards because when I think about it, you know, uh, training as an engineer, I can do that in four years. 
Three years later, I could take a PE licensing test, and now I can sign, uh, you know, drawings for buildings, right? I want to be a lawyer. I go to school, get an undergraduate degree, three years in law school, uh, full-time, four years if I go at night. Then I can take the law boards. I can practice law, and I can do whatever I need to do to practice law for my clients. Then you come to physicians, okay? Get an undergraduate degree. Now you go to medical school for four years. Now you go to, uh, for your specialty training. And um, you're, you're not ready to be out of school until you're almost 30, right? right. And then uh, most specialists will tell you if you, you know, very careful, have a conversation. It takes eight or 10 years to be good at what you do as a physician on top of that. Oh, absolutely. So now you've spent from the time you're 18 years old till you're in your mid-30s to be a comfortable practicing physician, comfortable with the art of medicine. And now you're going to spend three hours a week talking to insurance companies because you need to order stuff for your patients. And that just doesn't seem right. Why don't we let them practice medicine, do what they have to do, and then if there's some concern about their ordering pattern or the way they are approaching medicine, uh, why don't you talk to them afterwards? Not when they need to do it. I was uh, interviewing a physician uh, from Stanford a couple of weeks ago who works in a clinic, uh, but you know is on faculty at Stanford. And they had a patient who needed a CT right now. And they called the, the clinic for the CT. And they said, prior approval, need 48 hours. And the doctor said, no, no, no needs it now. And because of insurance, the patient didn't want to go to the emergency room because the CT would be three times more, uh, you know, expensive in the hospital. It got, goes to the imaging center two days later. The radiologist took one look at him, sent him to the hospital. They needed a surgery immediately. So why make that bureaucratic wall that makes it more difficult for a practicing professional who spent 15 years to get to where they are listening to some you know, requirement at an insurance company before you do what you have to do. It just doesn't make sense. So in our next book, we're advocating for allowing physicians to uh, be more direct in the practice of medicine, which will reduce the bureaucratic load and will improve the quality of care from our perspective. So I am one of those people that are uninsured because I'm self-employed and I'm in my 60s and they want like $1,800 a month. So, and I'm not even sick. So I have a catastrophic plan for like if I was in an automobile accident and or had a heart attack or cancer. Right, right. You know, but I'm going to clarify this, but where I'm going with this is I run my own labs mm -hmm. at a much cheaper price than the insurance companies would charge me to run my labs. Mm -hmm. I can order labs and, and people, the general population can do this on themselves. Sure. Because there's a company called Ultra Lab Test. And you can go to Ultra Lab Test and I'll put a link in the show notes and you can run any test you want. And it's relatively like a full panel for me, for a male, full panel. I'm talking everything that I can come up with is like $340, $340, mm -hmm. which an insurance company would bill me $1,500. Yeah, somewhere between $975 and $1,500, yeah. So 
I run my labs. And I, I'm the, I, since I've been trained, I can run. I, I look at my labs. I dissect my labs. I figure out what's wrong, what I've got going on. And then I find out, and then I do some more research on supplementation or f- changing food patterns to uh, fix the issue. Mm-hmm. And in the case I have to go to the doctor, like recently I had some, my heart hurt. So I went to have it checked out. And it was basically stress, which mm-hmm. I knew it was pretty much stress. But I wanted to get it checked out because I'm 60 some years old. So I wanted to get it checked out. And I just tell them I'm self-pay. Mm-hmm. And, and the re- rate to have an EKG done for self-pay was $150 versus I don't know what they would charge for an EKG and insurance. But that was with a physician reading it and I was in and out and the physician read it, called me back up, told me what she saw. I investigated it and and tweaking. now I'm tweaking my stress levels with supplements. So what I'm going with this is there's a lot of people that don't have, can't read their labs don't know what their labs mean and they can get their labs run ultimately for cheaper than they can at a doctor's office. Plus a doctor. Another thing is like, and this isn't their fault. I'm not ragging on doctors because they got into this to help people. The problem is they're wearing a shackle with a weight on it called the insurance company. And it's, that needs to change in my opinion. Well, you know, I think, you know, in our in our book, we thought that there should be a public option that is um, based on the price of Medicare, but does not include the uh, product called Medicare Advantage, which is uh, about 30 percent of the cost of Medicare. And we thought the public option should be available to anyone, but should also be available for companies to buy for their employees, but that you have the basic coverage that you need. And we thought if we did that sort of thing in our country, that would promote the development of Medicare Advantage-like plans that people could buy if they wanted wraparound coverage to the um, public option that we think would make sense. And that would create a market uh, for insurance companies to extend the life of their business. Um, Or they could figure out how to um, charge about 30% less to keep the um, core of their business. Now, when we... We are very focused in our nation about talking about Obamacare uh, and people buying Obamacare from private insurance companies. But the uh, fact of the matter is that 90% of the business that insurance companies do are with employers. So if a public option is available to an employer who could choose to be self-insured by private insurance or the public option or the public option with a wraparound or as we call it, there's uh, a lot of opportunity to change the way the market works and to change the cost of the market. You know, there are three things generally that we have to do. We want to lower the cost of insurance, but to do that, we have to lower the cost of hospital operation and we have to lower the cost of pharmaceuticals. I'm not in favor of um, lowering uh, what uh, physicians make uh, as a practical matter. Physicians, uh, not counting the office space they rent, they're about 10% of the cost of healthcare, and they generally specify 80% of what is spent. So we can make what it costs for things that they're going to buy. Hospitals are 32% of our cost, the biggest cost area. Pharmaceuticals are growing at the fastest rate of any section of, of healthcare. If we were to control those costs a little bit better, uh, that means the insurance costs are going to come down a little bit. 
And they're going to come down more if they have to compete with an option uh, like the one we talk about in our book. And, you know, there are other nations in the world that have been very successful in healthcare uh, do that. Uh, the German plan started in 1883. That's what and, I was going to say. You know, and it's, it's based on the idea that all employers will provide insurance coverage. In our nation, we're just saying that's a good first step. In, in Germany, there's over 100 uh, sickness funds, which are nonprofit insurance companies. You can pick any one of them through your employer, and you, you pay a percentage of the coverage. I think it's 15% of your coverage costs, and they have lower deductibles and all of that. If you're, um, you know, basically um, in their country, uh, a Medicaid-level person who's not employed, the government provides the insurance for those people. Their costs are um, much less than ours. Uh, Switzerland has a similar plan where they have about half their market is private insurance, about half their market is their public option. People move back and forth depending upon their employment or what they can afford. So, you know, I, I think there are models around the world for us to use in our nation. And there are, there are two starting points, basically. Uh, you can have, as the British do, you can have a national health service where uh, tax dollars pay for all basic health care for 90% of the population. Or you can use a system that's a hybrid of the German system where employment, uh, you know, health coverage uh, comes through your employment, as they do in France and Germany and, and a number of other nations. Those are the starting points. Now, uh, fixing health care is a complicated issue. But I think if you think about those things that uh, we ought to address in our nation, like the cost of pharmaceuticals, cost of hospital care, cost of insurance, and the fact that everyone should be covered, you know, I think those are good starting points to figure out how to how to have our healthcare system be about healthcare and not about uh, which CPT code you got to pay. Right. Well, let's dig into the book a little bit because this is intriguing, and we're going to start. I'm just going to start with chapter one. Right. You talk about the you talk about the German system, the German plan, and this was something that goes back to like 1940s. Uh, well, the German plan started in the 1880s okay. uh, with unified Germany. Uh, in the United States, um, during World War II, Roosevelt was always interested in, in some sort of centralized health care plan. During the beginning of his administration, um, he really wanted to get Social Security going, uh, but he couldn't couple those things together. So, um, they, you know, Social Security started. And then during the war, they decided that it was important to help uh, companies. So they made health insurance a um, non-taxable event. So it was just part of the company's expenses. It didn't count as income to the people who received healthcare. And that's where our uh, private healthcare system sort of you know, got going. I mean, Blue Cross started uh, around 1930 and um, you know, some other systems started around that time as well. The Kaiser, um, you know, company got involved with healthcare for its miners, and and that developed, um, it, you know, as well. So there were developing factors for uh, you know nonprofits like Blue Cross generally as uh, before that time. But around 1942 is when um, you know the private health insurance around the war effort really got going. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about the. Affordable Care Act or Unaffordable Care Act is, you know, I, I'm sure that this got bumbled by both sides of the party. I can't, you can't blame both the Democrats and the Republicans. And this is more, but what I know originally when he, 
when Obama set out to do this, he had a mission that was very, and he had, an, he, he was very adamant about making a system that's affordable to all. Yes. But somewhere along the lines, it became an abomination. Well, you know, uh, the negotiations um, are really clearly discussed in Obama's book, The Promised Land. There's a, a couple chapters that really focus on that. And um, the Democrats wanted a, a public option. They wanted to, um, you know, negotiate on drug prices, things like that. And um, in uh, 2009 or 2010, they really lost the, the battle about the public option. And that took part of the opportunity to save money out, out, of, the, out of the plan. Sarah Palin at that time was saying that uh, Obamacare uh, had death panels in it. And I remember that. Some of the um, senior uh, Democrats went back home for uh, public meetings, as they often do in the spring, and they got bombarded with questions about the death panels that didn't exist. Uh, so that made people, uh, legislatively, made people very nervous. Now, there was a uh, part of the bill that allowed physicians to be compensated and, and other uh, medical professionals to be compensated for end-of-the-life planning. If someone was terminally ill, um, they could be counseled uh, about uh, you know, how they could deal with the, uh, you know, the last months of their life. And um, Sarah Palin translated that into death panels. And people who were familiar with healthcare in other nations and also during the beginning of uh, the treatment of dialysis in the United States, there wasn't enough dialysis to go around. And there were panels that had to decide who would you know, survive on dialysis and who would not be offered that life-saving uh, treatment. So that created a lot of angst and that eliminated the public option from the Obama plan. Okay. What about Medicare? What, I mean, a lot of people believe Medicare is a government-run identity. Yeah. Well, in fact, uh, during 2010, um, there were placards that ended up on the news of people demonstrating against Obamacare that said, stay out of my Medicare. Medicare is a um, publicly run program. Um, it is a, a guideline and a framework that you work within and when you know you work uh within medicare you know uh what is covered and what is not covered as an individual if you pay attention you know that uh, um your maximum out of pocket uh, for part a and part b you know for part a is thirteen hundred dollars you know a year and um if you make less than one hundred and seventy thousand dollars a year in retirement you pay 139 dollars a month for medicare and um the reason uh, 30 or 40 percent of uh, those of us who are over 65 buy Medicare Advantage is it protects you from Part B expenses, which are doctor's expenses. If you get really ill, you know, your Part A is covered. That's the hospital. But the Part B expenses uh, are, uh, could, you know, are 20 percent of whatever is spent. So Medicare Advantage is attractive to control your drug and physician costs. Medicare um, recipients or beneficiaries, as they're called, um, generally like Medicare. You know, um, almost most doctors are in Medicare uh, and you can get, you know, the treatment that you need. Um, Medicare reimbursement for hospitals 
is um, about 80% of what they, uh, their costs are. But when you look at hospital costs, you have to uh, take into account that a lot of people work in the billing department. Right. <laughs> uh, as we point out in the book, over the last 10 or 12 years, the number of billing coders in the United States has grown from 70,000 70, to 170,000. So, you know, I, I've not been involved in this very often. I, I used to deal with uh, Blue Cross and other payers when we had our company. Um, but I envision the uh, medical uh, billers for the insurance company and the medical billers for the hospital, the doctor's office, you know, communicating about how do I get paid? Which CPT will code? What do you mean that's not going to be paid? Those kind of conversations must go on all the time. Yeah. I was looking at a, a medical practice in Washington State. There were four doctors in the practice, and they had four staff members. One staff member worked on pre-authorization. One staff member worked on appointments in office administration. And two staff members worked on medical billing for the four doctors. Okay, And they occasionally employed doctors who come down from Canada to work in their practice. And they found out that the doctors in Canada, in that practice, there were 12 doctors in the practice, and they had one office manager. And the office manager did the billing in half of her time for the 12 doctors. You know, So the bureaucratic costs uh, in their system are lower than the costs in our system, obviously. I mean, if you basically have one person in your office for every doctor in your office, I mean, that's, you know, that's a lot of people. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I think reducing the bureaucratic load, making billing, uh, uh, let, you know, understandable, making medical bills understandable is a really important thing to do. So we're going to get into that in the end because I want to know what you're, we'll get into how we fix this. One of the things, though, is let doctors be doctors. In chapter six, we talk, you talk about this. And, you know, part of the problem is like, and a lot of these doctors, even mine included, decided to get out of this and, and go to a concierge type system sure. where you pay a fee to be a, a, his patient. Your practice, yeah. So, and I think that's okay, but I, I think if we didn't burn them out so badly, that that mm -hmm. would never happen. Yeah, well, it's you're right. Absolutely. You know, as um, we pointed out in the book, and actually there was a survey by the Commonwealth Fund over the last year that uh, got to the same number. Among professions, uh, physicians burn out at the highest rate of all professions, that about 47% of them experience burnout at some time in their career. The other aspect of this is that about 35% of our physicians are age 55 or older. And the cost of going to medical school is, is very high. Right. And we actually penalize physicians because most of them, you know, have a lot of loans today for having gone to medical school. They usually owe a couple hundred thousand dollars when they get out. And in 2007, there's a law that says if you spend 10% of your disposable income, for 20 years to pay educational expenses, the expenses could be relieved. The remaining expense could be relieved in year 21. Now, that sounds pretty good, I guess, if you're going to make a high salary and, and you can pay 10% a year. The average physician, after 20 years in that program, owes $40,000. And when it's relieved, the IRS counts the $40,000 as income. So they got to pay another $10,000 in tax. <laughs> on the 40 grand. Now, 
The Wall Street Journal pointed out a few years ago that there's a dentist in a Western state who went to a prestigious dental school, was making, you know, a very nice salary, uh, but had to borrow an extraordinary amount of money. And the interest rate could change on the balance. So about 10 years into the loan, he is now paying less than the monthly accrual of, of uh, interest, paying 10% of his income. So when he is 20 years out, he will owe almost $2 million. Holy smokes. He's going to get a tax bill for $700,000 when he gets, so he will never get out of debt, you know, uh, based on that, right. uh, to do what he wanted to do to help people. And in our book, we suggest that if people have to borrow money to go to medical school, it ought to be simple interest or no interest for them to pay the bill back. So that's another reason to create pressure on physicians uh, to have to deal with that, that expense. And the American Association of Medical Colleges has projected several times over the last 10 years that we are approaching a shortage of primary care physicians because, you know... Let me see now. I could go to medical school. I really want to do that. Or maybe I should go into finance. Right. You know, so uh, I think that's another uh, issue. If we wanted to get to universal health care, we have to have enough, enough physicians to actually take care of everyone. And, you know, as you mentioned, concierge medicine is attractive because uh, the average primary care doc has 1,200 families in his practice. And concierge medicine allows them to uh, have 400 or 450. So they can actually have a better shot of remembering who they're talking to and, and uh, getting familiar with files more easily. We also have to make uh, electronic medical records a little bit more physician friendly. The number one complaint of physicians is they don't like having to fill out their uh, medical record forms in the EMR. Uh, in the EMR. Uh, my colleague that uh, I wrote my book with is a, uh, a senior neurologist at a teaching institution in New York City. And to maintain his position within the school, he has to make sure all of his EMR records or electronic medical records are up to date every three months. He's a neurologist. He's required by the EMR to weigh every patient that comes in his office and record their weight. Now, neurologists don't usually treat issues associated with your weight. Right. They do sometimes. But, you know, if I'm going to the neurologist because they have a headache, I'm not sure he needs to know I weigh, you know, 180 pounds. But he has to put that in the medical record. And if he doesn't do that, he gets penalized. He's a faculty member. He's a senior faculty member, too. So there are a lot of these little nits in the system that I think we ought to be able to fix pretty easily if we just put our attention to them. Now, this is something that from one thing that bothers me about doctors, and we kind of touched on this. And it's not that I hate on doctors because doctors are needed, but a lot of them write prescription over prescription over prescription to fix a problem that should have been fixed, could have been fixed with food or supplements. Mm -hmm. You don't have the training. Right. So is now I've been told, and this is just, I haven't investigated it because I really don't have time to investigate it, but it's because it's, is it because that pharmaceutical companies pay the colleges? Is that how? Is that why the prescription side of it's so high, or is that a, is that a, a facade that somebody's made up? Well, 
pharmaceutical companies um, aggressively as any good company would right. invest in marketing their product. Okay. So certainly they can um, fund chairs at universities or make donations to universities. And I'm not familiar with uh, how much of that they do. Okay. But uh, pharmaceutical companies hire and train salespeople to be detail people. And their job is to meet with physicians and explain to them how the, mar- uh, how the um, pharmaceutical they are representing works. So there, you know, and, and I've called on physicians in my uh, um, years working in the nephrology business. And when you went to call on them, when the physicians see sales reps, I would go and I would see five or six representatives of pharmaceutical companies in the lobby waiting to see the physician. And they'd go in and say, do you need more samples? This is the new product. Here's the brochure. This is how it works. That kind of thing. Right. So, so there, there's a tremendous amount of information that physicians can receive from pharmaceutical companies um, to market what their products can be used to treat. There are not a... Um, group of five or six dietitians in the lobby waiting to see the physician to tell them right. how their products work. Some of the younger physicians that I have met with uh, have taken uh, courses in, uh, you know, in diet planning and how diets affect disease. And, and I think uh, holistically, um, that's important. And, th- and that should be a part of healthcare in the future. That's a stronger part than it is today. Some of the physicians I, I know in, in uh, some primary care practices here in New Jersey, I uh, have dietitians that uh, come to their practice and meet with their patients, particularly if they have a large diabetic, uh, you know, uh, population, or uh, if they um, uh, treat patients uh, surgically to uh, treat the morbidly obese. You know, um, someone who uh, is unfortunate enough to weigh four hundred pounds and and wants to have surgery to lose the weight, needs to now learn how to eat after they lose the weight. Because if they don't learn how to do that, they're going to get large again. Right. And, and the surgery will have been a failure. So I think there's a positive trend in this area, but it's not, uh, it's not as big a trend as it might otherwise be. Now, I just accepted a position through a company called Thriver Health. What they do is they find people like me, functional medicine health coaches, and help the practice set up a system that I will take. Basically, I'm going to be working for a seven physician practice out uh-huh. in Salt Lake City, and I will. And the client and the patients can sign up for the health coaching. And this is all because of because co- of COVID. This is this coding got pushed to the front, kind of like telemedicine got pushed to the front. Good. So basically, I will consult with the doctor about the patient, and I will take that patient and walk them through a system of regardless of his high blood sugar or a met, uh, most of its metabolic diseases. Mm-hmm. So, which is my specialty, but I will be helping them either lower their cholesterol levels or you know their diabetic levels, or and so basically. I'm going to be the coach for that practice for the seven physicians. And then mm-hmm. I will take them from there and walk them through a program and consult with a doctor to them. And the, 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 and I will co- go back to the doctor and tell them how it's going and, and 
I'm looking forward to it. And, and I'm looking forward. This is good for the nation. So I agree. And, and it, it will, I believe in the end, it will cut costs. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Tom, part of the reason we have a lower life expectancy unrelated to the pandemic, before that we had right. a lower life expectancy than the other nations I mentioned earlier, is that people don't seek um, health care in a timely way because right. it's expensive or they don't have coverage, right? So what you're going to do is going to help people to improve the quality of their lives, to deal with weight loss or uh, you know metabolic control for diabetes or whatever it is they need help with. And that will be done at a much lower cost way than um, if they had to go, God forbid, had to go on dialysis later right. in life. It costs, again, you know, I'm focused on uh, the finances as well as right. uh, what we actually do. You know, with the United, United States, for every person on dialysis, we spend about $90,000 a year. And if you can correct your diet or correct your weight or, or manage your uh, type 2 diabetes so that you don't need the extraordinary care that I just described, right? Uh, you have a better quality of life, but it costs a lot less, too. Right. Well, I mean, if you think about a diabetic, if they stay diabetic and go really diabetic, then they start losing legs and limbs and fingers and toes and you know, and it, it, the cost keeps growing. Blood flow issues, for right. sure. That happened in, in uh, the small uh, arteries of that, you know, you know it's uh, been non-compliant for a long time. Right. Like, from my position, I was, I had metabolic syndrome at one point in my life, which is, I've said this before, is a collection of diagnostic, you know, like blood pressure, blood sugar. Uh, high cholesterol, all a bunch of them to got combined to call it metabolic syndrome. And the mm -hmm. doctor wrote me, my doctor, who is a great doctor, and he opened a concierge service. And he would, he off ripped me five prescriptions and I threw them in, in front of him in the trash. I took them to the trash can <laughs> in front of him and threw them in the trash. He goes, What are you doing? I said, I'm not, I'm going to fix this. So I started my course and now I'm, now I've, become passionate about this and I'm as you can tell I'm passionate about this healthcare thing and mm -hmm. you know I reversed that diseases in, in, in things in my body and I stayed took to a plan you know and, and I cheat I'm not gonna lie but I cheat but anyway that's a different subject I want to go on to now that we know how do we fix this it's like how do we make this right how how do we make it profitable how do we make it so that people have a health care plan and how do we get the government on board for a universal health care plan? Well, you know, uh, our coalition is just one group. There are many, many people who have all different uh, representations for health care. Our Healing American Healthcare Coalition uh, on our website at healingamericanhealthcare.org, we clearly explain we're not Democrats, we're not Republicans, we're advocates for health care, and we encourage people to join the coalition. They get our newsletter twice a month, and they get an uh, e-copy of our book, Healing American Healthcare, for joining. Uh, and it's not expensive. It's like $15 to join. And you get our book, and you, you get all of our newsletters. You get um, you know, occasional seminar that we do, things like that. And our, our uh, issue is education. Let's educate people so they can understand what's going on. We recently did a, a healthcare survey that we... Uh, we did on the internet, and when people came to our website, we invited them to take the survey, and it was about healthcare coverage. 
And uh, I answered every email I got. I got a bunch of emails. People uh, wrote to me and said, we don't want your socialized healthcare plan. And I said, well, I'm not promoting a uh, socialized healthcare plan. I would just like to know about coverage, whether people like it, whether they get what they need, what their concerns are, things like that. We learned a lot uh, about uh, a lack of understanding of how healthcare works, you know, because many of us in America get our healthcare through our employers. We sign up, we get a job, and they say, you can choose plan A, plan B, plan C, or here's our healthcare plan. And they say, okay, I got the healthcare plan. So they don't really understand how healthcare works. They know how to go to the doctor. They know they can pay a few dollars when they go or whatever. So we want people to learn more about that. But more importantly, we think um, members of Congress need to know more about healthcare. And I delivered a copy of my book to every uh, committee chair and ranking member of every committee in Congress. I went to every office and I gave them a copy of our book and, and a letter that said, here's a plan we think you ought to consider. May not be the plan you choose, but we, you know, we'd like you to consider that. And that's why we wrote our book with a, uh, our book has some history in it. It has uh, the issues of physicians. Uh, we talk about socialized medicine, the problems of Obamacare, and why our plan, you know, ought to be considered. In fact, uh, just last week, I wrote to Senator Murray and Congressman Pallone, who came out last month and publicly said that they would like to start a public option legislation in Congress. So we wrote to them and we said, well, this is a great idea. It's very complicated, hard to get through Congress. And we answered eight questions that they asked for more information about. And basically what we said was public option is a good idea, but funding this in Congress is going to be very difficult. But if you were uh, willing to ask all employers to have health care, the cost of your public option would be no additional cost to the government. In fact, you'd save $250 billion a year on Medicaid because uh, prior to the pandemic, 16% of the folks that were on Medicaid uh, didn't, you know, didn't have insurance through their employer. They had Medicaid, not employer-based insurance. So you know, we put those things in our letter because we'd like uh, our congressional leaders to start thinking about how can you do this in a way that... Uh, you know, changes the market, but doesn't eliminate it. The Medicare for all idea that was proposed by Bernie Sanders in the 2016 and 2020 election cycle would eliminate two and a half million jobs. And all of the costs would be at the government. So that means employers would get taxed per employee in some way to help pay for the plan. And I, I believe employers would like to control their own budgets to figure out how to do what they have to do. So we are opposed to Medicare for all because we don't think it really, while it would reduce uh, the cost for individuals, it would raise the cost for the government uh, at a time when our, um, you know, our deficit is growing dramatically. It's going to go up by tr $3 trillion this year. Uh, so, you know, our plan would actually lower government expenses, lower corporate expenses, but it would improve the quality of healthcare because we'd be reducing the cost of bureaucracy that increases hospital costs. We would reducing obviously uh, unreasonable charges. Why should Blue Cross in New Jersey pay roughly $350, $400 for MRI, but if you go in the hospital, it's $1,200 for the same test? Not reasonable, right. you know? Why should hospitals be able to charge you a facility fee when you go to a doctor's office uh, for a doctor that 
they've bought that practice. So a colonoscopy that's usually three or four hundred dollars now costs eleven hundred bucks in exactly the same room, exactly the same place where it was before. And when it was the physician's office, he had to deal with the overhead, and that was included in the cost of what you paid. So you know those kinds of things uh, need to be addressed to help bring the cost of healthcare down. Where you know, and at the same time, if we're going to lower some of those things, you know, nonprofit. Or uh, hospitals in the United States make $76 billion a year in profit. They don't pay taxes on that. And at the same time, while there are some hospitals that financially are doing extremely well and are well-known places that have, uh, you know, great reputations, hospitals in rural America are closing <laughs> two a month, are closing around the nation. But if if we change this distribution a little bit and change these fees a little bit, we would have more health care in rural America while we're lowering the cost of healthcare around the entire nation. Um, so in some rural parts of America today, when a, a woman is pregnant, she's going to have that baby by C-section because the OBGYN is two-hour drive away from her home. You know, so these kinds of things I think we could address if we logically look at uh, what these problems are, some of which I've uh, outlined in my answer to your question. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, that's what I loved about this chapter. Is that, uh, I mean, because it's really not a difficult, not difficult at all to do. Mm. You know, well, it's, it's difficult, uh, Tom, from the perspective of the interests of people who would be affected. Right. Well, the people would be with, there's a lot of people that would be without jobs. Well, I, I actually think the number of jobs that would be lost would be, I don't know, I don't think it's a lot. Okay. Um, but, but we're a nation now where we have somewhere around 6 million jobs we can't fill. Right. You know, and if there were less medical coders, which I think would be the case, these are people who are very detail-oriented and have learned a very complicated system. I'm sure there are jobs that could be trained for based on their right. you know, mental acuity and their aptitude if there wasn't a job for them in right. medical billing. So, you know, and I think that's hard to ask people to change what they do. I mean, I... What we're saying, you know, it's easy to talk about, right. but it, but it, it will be hard to do. I'm, um, when I was a young engineer, my my boss had three proverbs on the wall, you know, and one was uh, one many of of us have heard of. It's Murphy's law, you know, anything that can go wrong will go wrong, but the law that applies to healthcare is Krasmansky's law. Do you know what Krasmansky's law? No, is? I don't. Nothing is impossible for the person who doesn't have to do it. <laughs> right. And some of the right, I read something last week where someone said uh, uh, the solution to healthcare will be the problem. You know, when you change uh, a system like healthcare, it will change a little bit every year. You know, the National Health Service in Great Britain started in 1946, but they update parts of it pretty much every year to meet the challenges that the system has to face today. So, you know, improving healthcare, lowering its cost is a journey. It's it's not okay. The speed limit's twenty five miles an hour. We're ready to go. Not like that, but it is a journey, and we need to begin that journey and move on so that we can provide the coverage everyone deserves. As I said in the letter to the Congress people uh, yesterday or the day before, healthcare needs to be a foundation upon which people can build their lives. It, it shouldn't be oh my god, I don't have healthcare, or the quote that we have in our book uh, from an anonymous person who said, 
thank God the surgeon saved my life, but the bills are going to kill me. You know, <laughs> we, we, we need to, um, you know, move through this in a collaborative way uh, with strategic compromises uh, for our elected officials. You know, historically, Democrats want health care for everyone and Republicans want a lower uh, budget uh, federally. And what I'm saying is a plan like ours gives people coverage everywhere, but it also lowers the budget. Well, that it, yours adds budget money to the budget. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It adds money, and and if the country were to adopt our system, you don't need any uh, support for people, low income people. No subsidies uh, for their insurance; they're going to get it from their employer. They, you know, so right. there's no subsidies. You don't need to tax uh, biomedical companies as the Obama, uh, you know, Obamacare was supposed to do. There's no Cadillac plan tax. Uh, there's no penalty tax because everyone, you know, would have to have uh, coverage from their employer from the company, from the state. You're going to lower state budgets. You're going to have a public option that states, municipalities, and counties could could use if they would like for, to cover their employees. That's 15 million people that work in those categories in the United States. So, you know, there's a lot of things that can come together. You know, if physicians are being paid to do the right thing, they probably can help save money in what they order. You know, as you were talking about, maybe they don't need to order five prescriptions. Maybe they need to order one. Right. So, you know, I think it's momentum that we have to build by helping people to learn about uh, the issues of healthcare in an ob- objective, factual way. And we have to, you know, and you know, share our thoughts with our, our leaders to say, how about this? How about this? Isn't this a way that can we go move forward? Uh, if we were going to have Biden care with our current president, why couldn't Biden care save money? Build on Obamacare. There's some strengths there that we can build on, but let's lower the cost by doing something a little bit different. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that we need if we don't change. We're headed for a, a lot of issues in the sure. future because the generation behind us has got issues. Sure, they do, <laughs> you know? of course. And you know, CMS does a report, a projection for uh, five or six years in the future of what the total healthcare costs in our country are going to be as a percentage of GDP. Right. Well, they project that if we do nothing. By 2025, healthcare could approach 25% of GDP. It's at 19% now. So, you know, that would be wrong. A few years ago, Warren Buffett at his annual meeting uh, at Berkshire Hathaway said, you know, at that time, the government was looking at lowering uh, tax rates for corporations. And uh, Mr. Buffett said that over the last 50 years, uh, the tax rate for corporations actually dropped a little bit uh, as a percentage of GDP. But health insurance increased by 17%, and it made our international companies less competitive with companies abroad because of the cost of healthcare. So think about it. If you did something like what we're suggesting, the net savings for all of corporate America would be about $180 billion a year. They could use it for whatever they want. You know, uh, if you uh, have a negative feeling about companies, you'd say, well, it'll increase the CEO's pay. But they could use it to build buildings. They could use that better health care for their employees. They could use it for uh, recruiting employees that are hard to find. And if every com- company had health care in line with what uh, 
Huey Reinhardt said uh, before he passed away, he was a, a noted economist at Princeton, you know, if everyone had health care, then moving from job to job wouldn't depend on your health care because you're going to have health care at the next job anyway. So if you, if you wanted to move to a better job, good to go. And that's why Sherm likes plans like we're talking about. The Society of Human Resource Professionals, you know, likes the opportunity to uh, uh, provide better health care for the employees that they serve uh, for their employers. So there's a lot of forces we might be able to uh, muster up to bring together yeah. if they start thinking about this from the context of the momentum to move towards health care for all. I love it. All right. Any final thoughts, Ed? Well, you know, um, I really appreciate the discussion, Tom, and uh, thanks for bringing up a bunch of topics in our book. And uh, I've had a great time and uh, good luck yeah. to you and all you do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I highly suggest people re get this book and you can get this book by going to uh, the coalition website, which is www.healingamericahealthcare.org. I spelled it wrong here. <laughs> yeah, it's it's <laughs> healingamericanhealthcare.org, just like the title of her book. You can get it at our website by joining our coalition. You can get it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you might shop for books online. And, um, you know, I always tell people the last line in our book, you know, I, you know, no one wants to give away the punchline in their books. The last line in our book is if you have a better idea for healthcare, we'd love to hear it. <laughs> and uh, I would. I'd love to hear other ideas uh, because the idea for me is to make healthcare better. It's not just to have people use the Icorn Hutchinson All Care Plan for healthcare. So yeah, we we love to hear from anyone who's interested in healthcare, and I appreciate your, uh, um, you know, giving people where they can find our book. Uh, yeah, you know. it's a good book. I enjoyed reading it, and uh, you know, I've read Unconventional Medicine, which is also a very good book. And but we need we need something to change this, and we need to change it badly. Yeah, because we're headed for. Uh, a breakdown. <laughs> Wrong direction. All right. One thing before I go that I ask all my guests, and it has nothing to do with healthcare, but if Ed Icorn had 30 to 45 minutes to just chill out, what album or artist would you put on to listen to? I listen to James Taylor all the time. Okay. Um, you know, uh, that, that whole group of uh, artists from uh, that period. I, I love uh, Carol King and Carla yeah. Simon and uh, people like that. I, I like um, Michael McDonald. Yeah. Um, got a great voice. Uh, He's back with the Doobie Brothers this summer. Yeah, he is. Uh, and I, I like the Doobie Brothers, of course. Yeah. I like the Eagles. Yep. So, They're back on tour again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of where I am. That's the music. Right. It's nice to have people back on tour. That's oh, yeah. all. I'm going to close with that because that's good. Yeah, James Taylor is great. Carly, Carol King, Carol King, James Taylor were amazing. Yeah, I went to their concert uh, in New York City when they were touring. Oh, uh, nice. It was a great concert. Nice. They were married at one point. They were? No, I know he was married to Carly Simon. Oh, Carly I, Simon. Okay, I, okay, it was Carly Simon, not Carol King. I'm sorry. They're not touring together, though. No. I don't even know if they're talking. <laughs> Probably. They have kids. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right, buddy. Have a good 4th of July weekend. Appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time. Much love and God bless. You as well. Enjoy. Take care and be well. 
Thank you for joining in today with the Rebel Health Coach, Tom Underwood. And be sure to subscribe to the show so you can catch all the episodes. With desire and commitment, you can implement a lifestyle of wellness and fitness. For the support, encouragement, and tools you need to be successful, visit TomUnderwood.net.